notice in your word to use materials to do that. So help us to learn, even about this this morning. Help us to learn not to trust in the ways of man, but to put our full confidence, our full weight in the power of the gospel and the word of God. You are on page 46. After I show this video to you and I get it to stop, I am uh, I'm going to read you another passage out of Corinthians, okay? I'm so glad you're watching this video because I'm about to give you six things to double the number of people that you're reaching for Christ through your local church in 12 months or less. Stay tuned. All right, there are six strategies for comprehensive local church evangelism. The first one is Sunday morning evangelism. Quite frankly, there is still no hour of the week nor day of the week than 11 o'clock on Sunday morning where more people are coming to Christ. Now, whatever your service time is, really doesn't matter. But here's the question you need to ask yourself. Are you greasing the skids to make sure that there are no barriers to hearing the gospel and being exposed to the gospel on Sundays in the services that your church offers? The top baptizing churches around the country that are reaching more people than anyone <coughs> baptizing more and, and discipling more, you'll find that the gospel is a big part of the Sunday morning experience for those churches. Two, personal evangelism training. Now, actually, that's usually the first thing we think of when we think about local church evangelism, our people going out and sharing their faith. Well, you're onto something there because really the top churches in the country that reach the most people, you'll find that at least once a year they offer some kind of formalized training for their people to learn how to share their faith. Number three, team evangelism. That is where you create teams and organize existing teams like small groups or Sunday school for evangelism. There are lots of things you can do, but making sure that your existing teams and creating evangelistic teams is a key part of mobilizing more of your people to reach more for Christ. Number four, 
servant or ministry evangelism. Felt needs in your community are real deals. And the fact of the matter is, churches are effective in reaching a lot of people with the gospel, have found ways to go out into the community and make a real tangible difference. But they're not just making the world a better place to go to hell from. They're actually sharing the gospel in the process. Servant ministry evangelism, incredible way to reach more people for Christ. Number five, event evangelism. Events still work. You can still create events that you can market, promote, and publicize that your people can happily invite their friends, family, and neighbors to where those folks will hear the gospel. I believe in go and tell evangelism, but you'll know that just like Andrew and the woman at the well, there's also come and see evangelism. But we've got to create the events for our people to invite people to. Those are five of the six. I've got one more I want to share with you that's crucially important that maybe is the thing, the one strategy that makes all the other ones work and can instantly raise the evangelism temperature in your church. But for that one, you've got to go to doubleyouroutreach.com. That's doubleyouroutreach.com or click the link below and you'll get the entire strategy of the five I just named plus the sixth one that may even mean the most. Don't forget to like and share this video and I'll see you on the other side. <coughs> Hello, Pastor. <laughs> I didn't get that website. <laughs> Doubleyouroutreach.com. <laughs> you already had that on your phone? <laughs> you have to six one. Huh? Yeah. Number six. I didn't go look up number six because... <laughs> He lost me from the very first sentence. First Corinthians three eighteen. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish, so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they're useless. So then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world, or life, or death, things present, or things to come. All things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Let a man regard us in this manner, as servants of Christ, and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy, Can you imagine the Apostle Paul going into Corinth or Colossae or somewhere else, going into the synagogue or into the catacombs or wherever the believers are gathering in homes and and giving them a sales pitch like that to go reach the, the Jews or the Gentiles? Have you ever seen anything like that in the book of Acts? It goes through. Now, obviously, any time that you can get in contact with people and share the gospel with them, that is a good thing. Um, there's obviously nothing wrong with doing different events. We do uh, an 
Easter and uh, a fall harvest event in order to do good to the community and bless them. And we pray and hope that we'll have opportunity to bring people in contact with the gospel. Um, but as you listen to that video, besides the sales pitch, uh, you know, type of type of approach, um, what did you notice? What jumped out uh, at you? Never quoted scripture. Never quoted scripture. Exactly right. And he said it very definitively too, didn't he? Yeah. What else? Everything was short snippets. Nothing was in depth. <clears throat> Absolutely. Good upbeat music in the background. Now, by the way, I don't know who this guy is, but um, that comes from the Georgia Southern Baptist. So that's who, who promoted that video. I think the guy has something to do with their evangelism and outreach. In the His points were based on quote-unquote success in other churches. Success in other churches. Was man-centered. Was very man-centered. Yeah. Probably why my son's going to a PCA church in Augusta, Georgia. <laughs> the, the, the intensity of his speech made it sound more authoritative. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. It was all about numbers. It was all about numbers. Doubleyouroutreach.com. He was guaranteeing growth when that reveals what you believe about conversion. Sovereign work of the Spirit, then you can't guarantee that the Spirit's going to do anything based on your methods. That's good. Yep. It was all about numbers, but he didn't use numbers to back it up. When he said churches would have the most baptisms, but he didn't give an example of church, you know, they have 300 baptisms a week or anything like that. He didn't give anything. You know, there's uh, courses in college taught on these types of things. You know, books written on the ten fastest growing churches in the U.S. And, and as our brother just said, there's an appeal to the experiences of these churches for you to go and, and do life with. Uh, do you remember the Purpose Driven Life book that came out years ago with, with Rick Warren? Can you imagine being a pastor with less than 100 people in your congregation and you teaching them the purpose, you know, driven church and then trying to mimic what happens at Saddleback in Orange County with 12, 20,000 people coming to this church and oodles of, of, of money, you know, with the most polished. I've been to Saddleback. I walked in their children's ministry and I'm not kidding you, it looks like Disney World. Does. I mean, you walk in, there's characters dressed up, the, the wall has a, you know, a, an entire aquarium. I mean, it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. I wasn't a kid, and I wanted to go to, to kids. <laughs> Can you imagine? So this being held out is this is the way that you can grow your church. And then me being at Cornerstone Baptist Church that had 38 people vote on me, and I read that. And I get my people to buy into because we genuinely want to see people come to Christ. I mean, we, we really want to see people saved. We're not, we're not wicked Benny Hinnish folks that are looking for money or others. We genuinely want to see people come and hear the word. And then I buy into that, and then I sell them that, and then the growth doesn't happen. Can you imagine what that does? 
the discouragement or, or otherwise. And then you begin to think, well, there must be something wrong. There must be something wrong with my church. There must be something wrong with my methods. There must be something wrong with, with me. When what the Apostle Paul here says is nothing could be further from the truth. What the Apostle Paul says is that success in ministry is faithfulness to the Word of God and the Gospel of God. Um, probably the most offensive thing to me about that whole video somebody said was the guarantee of results. There was this idea that if you do what I say, you follow this, I can guarantee you results. And um, I wish I could do that, uh, but I can't. Because I long to see people come to, to the Lord, but the Lord's wiser. Uh, somebody else have a hand up front? Oh, uh, yeah. I was just wondering, is it not like using carnal methods to bring people to Christ? Can be. For sure. Looks like a pitchfork club. It did, yeah, but it was very pitchy, wasn't it? A few of the things came out of it. First of all, what he was pitching was something that he could get out of. It was for him. Because he said, visit my website. Okay? So he was trying to get something out of it. He also mentioned that Sunday Sunday morning church was an experience. It was. Absolutely. Now, I did not go look at number six. But... I've seen the stuff before. More than likely, when you go to number six, it's going to have something to do with the fact that you went and clicked on the website and see it works. You know, because I told you that there's a number six and then didn't tell you what it was. So you came to my website and you figured out, you know, so here is the method, proof, you know, proof that it works. So follow this. I don't know that. And I didn't want to go put my information in the in the guy's website because I didn't want to get anything else from him or give him any type of you know credit. I almost had a hard time showing you this this morning because I gave him one more click on his YouTube, which by the way there's only like 700, so it's not really successful. If you want to buy into his method, you can find one that's on the you know on the million category. Yeah, um, one I, I totally agree, 100. But we do have to also be careful that like. You know, Southern Baptists, still Christians. This guy may still be a Christian. Paul talks about people who preach the gospel out of vain glory. You expect them to say, are off one, shouldn't be doing it. But he said, they're preaching the gospel. And so I think we're absolutely right to, to say all of these things are bad things. Some of those things are things our church does. And so we do have to be careful not to, like, throw stones at other Christians, too. I absolutely agree. This is not the way we should be doing evangelism. But we have to make sure that we're not that we're still careful with the people we agree yep. on the gospel with. I couldn't agree with you more. Did you hear something this morning that made you feel like people were throwing stones? I I wasn't necessarily trying to say, well, I'm just You're trying just to say, that yeah, like, like sometimes it's easy yep. to point out all the wrong things and still say, look, like there are people that are still brothers and, and have that tension there. Too. Yeah, which is what I was trying to say earlier about, uh, you, know, there's, you know, there's good intentions for sure. Just like there's probably some people in Corinth that have really good intentions where the Apostle Paul rebukes them very roundly and very strongly here. So, um, good point. Uh, open your uh, your lesson to, to 46. The type, of, the type is how should we do ministry? And we just read that 
what we're talking about is spiritually discerned. And yet, the Bible does give us a very clear way, a set of unalterable principles, non-negotiables, that determine how we will function in ministry. The purpose of this section is to develop and understand a thoroughly biblical philosophy of ministry. And then avoid the temptations and idolatries governing unbiblical approaches to ministry. We'll discuss and examine those. In the first passage that we open to is Ephesians chapter 4. So one of the first questions that we have is, all right, Paul, we don't want to depend on worldly wisdom or on man's ways. If we are very genuine and truly desire... that people come to Christ and that we use biblical methodology, is there any place in the Bible that lays that out? Lays out what is a church supposed to do? What does it does it look like? Of course, God can do whatever He wants to do. I could be driving down the road carry tracks and one of those tracks blow out the window and it land on the side of the street and then a man who doesn't have a vehicle is walking to the bus stop, happens to stumble on that track and bend over and pick it up and read it and in the reading of the gospel he is saved. God can do that but then that doesn't mean that I should go back to the church and promote you know, a track blowing ministry of throwing them out the window. God can do what God wants to do. I was saved in a church that didn't have a biblical philosophy of ministry. I was saved in spite of it. People have been saved under my preaching in spite of me or my ability. Praise God it's not dependent on me. But that doesn't mean that I don't try to do it God's way. And I don't try to look at what the scripture actually said. So what does the scripture have to say about the church? Ephesians chapter 4 gives us some prerequisites to understand faithful ministry. This is not just a passage about um, the offices in the church. This is how the church of Jesus Christ is to operate the focus of the church. This is Ecclesiology 101. This is what the Bible tells us the church looks like, is structured like, and its goal, the work that the church does. So look, if you would, at verse 12, which is a very familiar passage. Ed, why don't you read for us verses 12 through 16, if you would. <laughs> to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by human cunning by craftiness and deceitful schemes Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, 
when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. <coughs> so here's an x-ray, a CT scan, if you will, an MRI, whatever medical diagnostic tool you want to use, of the church. Verse 11, we, where we typically start, where God gives the structure of the church. He gave some apostles and prophets. Ephesians 2.20 tells us they laid the foundation of the church. The apostles and the prophets laid the foundation of the early church. And that's exactly what you see in, in the Bible. Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. He told Peter, upon this rock I will build my church. Upon the, the fact that he's the Christ, the son of the living God. So the church is built upon the gospel. Christ is the cornerstone. The apostles come along and then they preach that message. They lay the foundation, apostles and prophets. And you see that in the book of Acts. They have signed gifts. They're authenticating that they are the sent ones, the messengers that, that are ushering in the Messiah and the New Covenant. The prophets are there. You don't have a completed New Testament. Ephesians 2.20, the apostles and prophets lay the foundation of the church. There are no apostles and prophets today, regardless of what you see on the billboards, you know, um, apostle this and, you know, bishop at that. Uh, there are no apostles and prophets today. They laid the foundation of the church. But then that foundation is built upon. When the, when the canon is complete, the scripture is complete, the sign gifts are gone to, uh, that authenticate uh, you, you now have structure being placed in the church. We don't have time to go into it, but the number of messages tracing the chronological uh, work of the Spirit in Acts. The book of Acts starts in Jerusalem, focuses on Jews, Peter and John, then transitions to Paul, right? And Gentiles, the most parts of the, of the earth. And you will find as, as the church grows, more and more structure is placed in the church. So, You'll find elders, and then you'll find deacons, and then you'll find the qualifications for elders and deacons in First Timothy and Titus, Second Timothy. Those are toward the end of the Apostle Paul's ministry, so that's like 61, 62 A.D. So between Christ, 33, and mid-60s, so 30 years, the apostles and the prophets are, are beginning to lay the foundation of the church, and as the foundation is laid, then you have more structure of deacons and then elders and then the qualifications for those and more epistles come and the sign gifts are trailing off toward the end of the Apostle Paul's ministry. He says, Tropimus, I left in my lead is sick. When he's giving, you know, fancy healing hankies in the beginning to authenticate his ministry, Paul obviously doesn't have one of those when he's getting ready to die because you don't see anything like that in toward the end of the Apostle Paul's ministry. And then you go all the way through John, the revelator, who gives us revelation and some of his final uh, of his final works. That's in 90. So the foundation of the church is finished by about 100 A.D. The Apostles and the Prophets. Ephesians 2.20 clearly tells you that they laid the foundation. Then who builds on it? Well, verse 11 tells us. He gave some apostles and prophets the foundation, 2.20 tells us, and some evangelists and some pastor teachers or pastors and teachers. So who's taking over after the apostles and the prophets go off the scene? Missionary evangelists, individuals that go outside of the church that do the evangelistic work. They're preaching the gospel to people. That's their primary ministry. Now what are they doing? They're building on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets laid. 
what did the apostles and prophets preach? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He's both Lord and Christ. And that's what they did. And as they preached that message, people get saved. And God gathers an assembly together. And those evangelists begin to root them in basic doctrine. And then what happens? Well, the same thing that you see in Crete and Titus. Where Paul sends Titus to Crete and he says, set the church in order. How do you set the church in order? Well, obviously if it needs to be set in order, that means it's out of order. Well, how's it out of order? It needs elders. So these are pastor teachers that then take over. And what do they do? Well, it tells us. Ed read for us in verse 12. For the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Now, everybody's part of that equipping process because this is ecclesiology. So the apostles and prophets have a part of that. The evangelists have a part in that. But the primary work, you can tell from plenty of other places in Scripture, the primary task of a pastor or teacher is equipping. So, yeah, you do the work of an evangelist. That's the command. But the primary task is to equip the saints to mature the saints. And so the evangelist, missionary evangelist, the pastor teachers are building on that foundation and they're building up the church. What then does the building, the building of a church look like? Well, he describes it. The equipping of the saints to the building up of the body of, of Christ. And what's the goal? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Notice there's an article there. It's the faith. It's like in Jude, the faith that's once delivered unto the saints. Like in 2 Timothy 2.2, the things that you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. Saint commit faithful men. So what's Paul saying? I'm not giving you my evangelism strategy or my whatever. This is what I've taught everywhere. This is common truth, orthodox truth. The faith once delivered to the saints. So that's our goal until we all attain to the whole counsel of God. And of the knowledge of the Son of God, what is salvation? That we might know Him. And that's our goal, right? To know Christ. In the morning. To a mature man. And there is the target. Maturity. How mature? To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And what does God promise? What are, what are you predestined unto? To be conformed to the image of Christ. That Christ would be formed in you. That you would be made like your Savior. And that's maturity. That's spiritual maturity. That's sanctification. And that's happening. And how's it happening? Or we say, what's the result of doing that? It's the result of this equipping the saints, the body, individuals, so that they can focus on the whole counsel of God, understanding of being unified in the faith once delivered, and knowing Christ to bring about maturity, and how mature unto being fully conformed to Christ. And the result of that kind of ministry, in verse 14, is discernment, first of all. As a result, we are no longer to be children, because here and there, by waves carried about by every wind of doctrine and the trickery of men by craftiness in deceitful scheming. So there's one of the first results, sermon. 
Bertha said that the, the church has spiritual AIDS and it could die of a thousand heresies. You know, AIDS is not what kills you, it's what destroys your immune system. So something else kills you. So what is the antidote to that? Protects you from from that oh, biblical philosophy of the ministry. And look at verse 15, because here's the other result. But speaking the truth in love, that's not just saying something hard and nice. You're speaking the truth. It's a loving thing to do that. You're loving one another in the body when you repeat the truth. When you know the truth, obviously, and then are able to, to speak it. And we're to grow up. Listen to this theme. It's all about growth. So here's church growth. We're all to grow up in all aspects into Him. Who is the head? Even Christ. From whom the whole body is being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. According to the proper working of each individual part. Causes the growth of the body. Here's church growth. And building up of itself in, in love. So equipping is done. And that equipping is a process. It continues. And as that equipping is done, then the saints are doing the work of service. And that's speaking the truth to one another. And discernment begins to form. And as discernment begins to form, maturity begins to form. And then the body functions rightly, and that brings about growth. That's prerequisite in understanding faithfulness. If you don't understand this is the target of the church, this is why we gather, this is what we are to do, this is church growth, if you don't understand that as a prerequisite, then you're going to easily get off track. You're going to easily end up in um, with real, genuine desires to do the right thing, but using the wrong methodology um, to do it. Look at that. Principles governing ministry don't change by culture. What's that aiming at? Well, okay, I mean, that's okay for, for, for Ephesus and back in Paul's day, but, but we're in, you know, 2019. I mean, there's a postmodern generation. I mean, things are different today than they were in Paul. Absolutely, things are different today. But what can you know for sure? What hasn't changed since Paul's day? God hasn't changed. And who else hasn't changed? Man hasn't changed. The human heart, Abraham's human heart, is exactly the same as your human heart. You may manifest differently. I mean, Abraham may be tempted to, you know, covet lots of goats or whatever, but still there's coveting that's happening. Um, so God hasn't changed, man hasn't changed, and the power of the gospel hasn't changed. The power of the gospel has not changed. Benign cultural elements can and should change. Now, what's he aiming at there? You don't have to look like you fell off of, you know, the 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 cover of Life magazine in 1950 with, you know, brill cream and horn rim glasses, and you, know, you don't. If that's your style, knock yourself out. But I don't have to do that and say that I'm being faithful to, to, to Christ. I don't want to change with the culture in order to look that way. That, that's obviously not what we're, what we're arguing against. You can use technology. It's a difference in style. 
But don't turn around and try to look like, you know, Justin Bieber with holy jeans or, you know, whatever in order to think that somehow that makes you more attractive to the culture, that that's going to help you in ministry. Be who you are, but more importantly, focus on where the true power is in, in Christ. So benign cultural elements can and should change. I can remember being at Red House when my pastor brought for a Sunday night. A missionary was coming from where he brought a television and this thing called a VHS recorder. The tape things. And it was, I mean, this thing was, I don't know, the box was like this big, this tall, and it was that thick. Whereas I had like this little itty bitty screen in the middle of it. The VHS recorder was plugged in. And I can remember this guy in our church just flipping out that my pastor had brought that into the sanctuary of God. I mean, he lost it. How could you do that? You desecrated the sanctuary by bringing a television set in here. Well, I'm a new Christian. Is this bad? And you show a missionary video, what's, you know, well, yeah, but that thing is used for other horrible things. Well, it is. Is that what Paul's talking about here? That, no, no, it's not what Paul's talking about. Now, I want to note to you, the same guy that flipped out of the TV set is the same guy that dressed up as Santa Claus every single Christmas and brought, wanted to come into Sunday school classes and give candy to the children there. So he's, it's, you know, Benign cultural elements can and should change. This is not against style or technology or or otherwise. An application of principles will depend somewhat on culture. Honoring parents in Nepal will look different than honoring your parents in the United States. Paul, they lived in flats, and typically the family unit from you know whoever's the oldest to the youngest, they live in the same, and, and there's there's a there's a cultural honoring that's there. But the principle's the same. You honor father and mother. And there may be cultural aspects that you have to you have to worry about. But that's obviously not what he's changing or what he's arguing <clears throat> Principles governing ministry, principles don't change based on doctrine or don't change based on culture or doctrine. And B, is a prerequisite to understanding faith and ministry. God has designed ministry to be long-term. How does the Bible describe what examples does the Bible give for, for spiritual growth? What's the illustrations that you can think of in the Bible for spiritual growth? Jesus feel about, you know, be patient, you know, don't grow weary because if you person here, you'll reap the harvest. Yeah, very agricultural. That's exactly right. Yeah, trees. Trees. Vines. He uses, uh, when he uses athletics, he uses a marathon. (laughs) Huh? Nutrition. Nutrition. That's exactly right. And when I plant a garden, you know, my kids, you know, when Bella goes out and she puts the seed in the ground, Water, we do all the things, and she's out there the next morning to see if there's, you know, there, there's an ear of corn on it, right? 
But that's not the picture that the Bible gives. It's a tree. Psalm 1, a godly man is like a tree beside these beautiful waters, still waters, that's flourishing and growing. John 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches. So he's talking about harvesting, pruning the vine. What does Jesus, what example did Jesus just use in Mark? Condemning Israel. What kind of tree was it? Fig tree. It's a fig tree, right? And the parable about the fig tree, when he doesn't find fruit, and then there's the earlier parable where he goes and he doesn't find fruit, and he says, I'm going to cut it down. No, 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 no. Give it some additional seasons and dungeons. And all agricultural, it's all long-term, isn't it? Um, God's designed ministry to be long-term. Spiritual growth is described as a vine, as a tree. Spiritual growth, the growth of a church, the growth of an individual is like a tree. It's not like a mushroom. Have you ever come out in your yard in, when it's really moist and the next thing you know, I mean, you have this giant mushroom grain. It literally came up overnight. Literally. Spiritual growth is not a mushroom. And mushrooms, you know how they you know how they grow mushrooms, right? They're grown in manure. A lot of mushrooms grow in manure. And there's a lot of church growth that's grown in manure. God has designed ministry to be long term. And there's two ingredients. It requires faith and it requires patience. Pastoral patience. One of the things that we preach over and over and over. Why? Because the goal is just to outlive everybody until you can do things your way? No. Because ministry requires faith and it requires patience. It's the long haul. You're building on a foundation. I didn't start Timberlake Baptist Church. Many godly men before me have been doing this. And if the Lord tarries, God willing, many godly men after me will be doing the work. What work are they doing? They're under rowers, they're bond slaves, they're servants in the work of, of Christ. So we can't produce uh, or manufacture results. Look at see, ministry is cyclical. It's up and down and people come in and out and you'll read all kinds of books about that fact. Well, think about your agriculture. There are seasons of harvest, there are seasons of pruning, there are seasons of, of fertilizing, and that's exactly the way that it is with the church. It's not hammered down in every, you know, every year there's this bumper crop that is happening. The Lord may need to humble you. You may need to do some sanctifying work in the church. Growth in the church, as you saw in Ephesians, is not just about new converts. Look at D. This really aims at our pride. Ministry results is a prerequisite for faithful ministry. Ministry results are entirely out of our hands. We can't produce or manufacture results. Now, if I said ministry results are out of our hands, 
everybody in here, just about anybody, says, Amen. And sure results are out of our hands. But when you put that little qualifier in front of there, it, it adds a little bit of weight, doesn't it? Ministry results are entirely out of our hands. Kind of sounds like what Jesus says in John 15, doesn't it? Without me, you can do nothing. I can remember years ago, this had to be back in the 90s, I remember listening to the late Harold Wilmington talking about this principle. And he said, I, the longer that I'm in ministry and the, the more I've learned, he said, when I first started, I thought it was like 90-10. 90% the Lord, 10% my effort. And then about another five years went by, and I said, no, 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 it's probably 95% the Lord, 5% me. And of course, I don't know how old he is then, but he's, you know, he's pretty old. He said... And, and even, you know, even uh, as much as, you know, five years ago, I would say 99, all right, 99% the Lord, 1% me. I mean, I've got to have something to do with it. And I'm here to tell you, it's 100% the Lord. And that's a really, really hard thing for our pride to take. We can't produce or manufacture results. And you mean, wait a minute, so what does that mean? I just do the frog on the lily pad. I do nothing because God's going to do No, look at what he's saying. It's results. You can't produce or manufacture results. Ministry results are entirely out of your hands. You know what's in your hands? Ministry. That's what's in your hands. Do the work. The results are up to the Lord. But you're commanded to faithfully do the work. And you do that by faith. And you do that with patience. And that is success. Success is sharing the gospel. Success is building people up. Success is studying and preaching and doing that faithfully. And because we can't produce or manufacture results, we contribute nothing. We can't often measure the results. Um, I guess Jesus was right when he said, I will build my church. I don't want to argue with Jesus. <laughs> so he said, didn't it? He said it on the night. We're here to get some temptations. Why is it so hard? Well, some of it's because it's genuine. You genuinely want to see people come to the Lord. But it's the temptation to then turn to worldly methods or some accelerator to try to produce what God says you can't. We can't often measure the results. Have you ever had the experience where you really believe someone was very sincere? Maybe you led them to Christ or, or they came in the church and they were you know, what we used to call on fire for the Lord. And then you, you know, you, you've known them for a long enough time for them to just flame out and go right back to whatever they were doing before. Um, have you ever experienced? If you haven't, it's a it's a very disheartening thing to to experience what seems like results or growth. You may even have good intentions, 
and then realize that that it's it's not there. It's like the parable of the sower, and it pops up quickly and and burns out. That's there's correct. no foundation. Yeah, it's very tempting. Um, it really is. Yeah. I don't think God will use that either because then it will take away from His. his Like a billboard or something like that, and they're using these different ways to 
to get people to come to the church. And so, what is the difference between that and these these uh, pastors that are using these carnal methods, but they're still proclaiming the words of Christ? Yeah. But they're just using bad ways. To yeah, I think that's what uh, you know. Our brother was trying to you know was was, was trying to say. At least you know, I can't read his heart. Can't step out. But I think he's obviously guarding us against one proud, you know, being proud of the fact that we understand this. So you do have to guard yourself against that. I mean, you don't understand these things. I'm not preaching these things to you because we're smarter than the average bear. Oh, look at us. We got it all worked out. This is grace. I mean, you understand this is grace that you're sitting here hearing what a biblical philosophy of ministry is. Because you could be in 300 other churches within 25 minutes that aren't preaching this. They're probably preaching that or something else. And that's not a condemnation, you know, an exaltation. This is grace because this is what the Bible says. Either it says this or, you know, it doesn't. So I think he's trying to guard us against Christ. The other thing I think he's, he's, he's probably arguing against is well, be careful because the gospel sometimes is preached in, in those places. And I was saved in that, and you might have been saved in that. And that's, you know, the, the preacher says God can strike straight licks with crooked sticks. It's true. He can. But that was my point about the track. God can do a lot of things. But but I don't I don't base my philosophy of ministry on what God can do. I base my philosophy of ministry on what the word of God says to do. Because I'm going to give an account for that. So, yes, God does save some people. God saves people under women preachers at times. Because the gospel is power. But that's pragmatism. That's arguing, well, you see the results, therefore this must be right. And that's exactly the opposite of what the Apostle Paul is arguing here. Yeah, the end just by means. Yeah, the end Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I, I was just going to say one of the things that's dawned on me right lately in my study, and we're especially considering the sovereignty of God and salvation, is we we need to look at evangelism not as winning souls, but as discovering the elect. We're, that's what we're to do. That's why we're to be faithful, because that's the chosen method that that God uses human instruments proclaiming his word to reach those who he's already determined he's going to he's going to save and just yesterday reading in Acts 18 in verse 10 the, the final phrase of that verse when God's essentially saying continue here to, to preach and teach the word Paul he said for I have many people in this city. He, Paul wasn't finished because he had not yet reached these who God says, I've already had them, Paul, but you need to keep teaching so that they're discovered by your preaching in the Word, and I draw them to myself. Yeah, what did Spurgeon say? Um, the, the, the aspect of the elect, who is the elect, that's a mystery. And if, if everybody... You know, he was arguing against hyper-Calvinism. He said if, if the elect had, a, had an E on their shirt tail, then I'd run around London pulling out everybody's shirt tail and only preach to them. But since that's not the case, I preach to everyone. And so you don't ever limit the offer of the gospel. But you're right, who God applies the gospel to clearly you know, 
connects to his eternal decrees. Um, so we have just a, a question on on the parable of the talents, um, which would seem to counter this. Uh, what could be used to argue against it? With you know, if you give me five talents and I went out and see, look, I brought you five more. Right. Um, how would you uh, address that? Yeah. Um, the first thing I would say is, who gave you the talents? It was obviously the Lord. And so the argument there is to be faithful with what he's given you. So we're not arguing against unfaithfulness. I mean, if God has, whatever gifts God's given you, you're going to be held account of using them. And that's the, you know, that was really what we were just balancing with, you know, with the brother here. That, you know, of course God, I mean, God's the initiator in salvation. He already knows who's going to be saved. But that... That has nothing to do with our effort or our obedience or, or who we plead with or our passion or otherwise. You know, that is what everybody argues against, you know, uh, the sovereignty of God and, and you know, misapplies things. That's what true hyper-Calvinism is, that you limit the gospel. You, you, you don't preach to certain people until you see evidence that, that God's doing something in their, in their heart. And that's very unbiblical. Um, so I would say it has everything to do with being faithful. You know, that's that's the point of the, of, of the talent, and that's what Paul says here: is a steward must be found must be found faithful. But but what is encouraging in your faithfulness is not the results you can manufacture by your faithfulness. It's the fact that God has promised results by your faithfulness. He promises to accomplish His work if you use. Of his methods. So you can't use worldly scales to weigh out God's work because God intentionally has designed his work to confound the wise and not look like you know worldly methods because of what you just said. So he gets the glory. So you can't get the glory. It's a great question. Just a few points of clarity here. The Philippians one text was brought up and said, Hey, look, Paul didn't condemn anybody. But what he's saying is essentially they're preaching they're preaching the gospel with the right method with the wrong motive. Does it make sense? So it's not even like they're using a different method. So he does critique Paul critiques methodologies all the time. All the time. So he warns people about building with the wrong materials. It's going to be burned up when Christ returns. You know, it's wood, hay, and stubble. That's building materials. That's ministry methodology. So. He's all the time warning about that. The Philippians 1 text was appealed to earlier is about people preaching with the wrong motives, intending to hurt Paul while he's in prison, and Paul's saying, I'm not going to take that bait. Like, I'm going to rejoice if the gospel's being preached. So the context is a little bit different there. Just want to point that out. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, I take I, I usually take the you know the, the caution about you know calling something out or being critical. You know, it's some of it's societal, but sometimes it comes from our hearts. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We don't want to act like we're the only ones that you know that, that know how we do it. So um, obviously, I hope I'm not coming across in that way. It's not my intent, but I'm not going to apologize in any way, shape, or form for exactly what the text says, teaching what the text says, because that's what the text says. It's not my text; it's God's text, and I'm going to stand on it and die on it. I don't have anything else. I, this is the nuclear option, fellas. There's nothing else other than the book. Mm-hmm. And you outside of the book, and you know, you can do all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so, thank you. 
Sometimes people don't understand when you're the pastor of a church the difficulty you may have fighting against this. Because I pastored a church in Orange County that Saddleback was growing and Rick Warren came out with his, with his books. And I had people in my congregation come up and say, why aren't we doing this? Preach on, brother. I, I wasn't even thinking about you when I was given. I was actually thinking about Cornerstone. I was thinking about the church I was in when everybody was doing the purpose-driven craze or whatever the new craze is, you know, um, experiencing God, whatever it is, some marketed methodology that says if you buy into this, it will change your church. It will bring these results. And, and I fell to some of that out of genuine desire. <clears throat> I want to see people say, I'm not the smartest knife in the drawer. Maybe somebody else is. But then you try and you figure out it doesn't last. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't grow. And it is there is a lot of pressure to that. Um, you know, for as many ser- for as many, you know, great sermon pastors that you get, you, you know, you get as many. You know, wow, I, I sure wish we were doing more soul winning. I sure wish that you know more people were walking the aisles. You know, and, and I want to see people. Say, I mean, I want to want to see the church grow, and that, that can be great pressure, which is exactly what we probably don't have time to go all through. But it is next. Look at number two. We'll close with this. Idolatries, prerequisite for understanding faithful ministry. Principles governing it don't change. God's designed it to be. Long term, it's cyclical. It's entirely the results are entirely out of our hands. And then here he focuses on the idolatries that can derive unbiblical philosophies. When you start calling this idolatries, it's tough. Changing methodology for the sake of results proves your ministry is being governed. There's a stake driven in the heart and stomped on. So what are some of those idolatries? Cultural influence. Approval of man, fear of man. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 17, not in cleverness of speech. Listen to how strong this is. Lest the cross be emptied of its power. You think that adding cultural appropriations to the gospel is going to accomplish more results, and the Bible says it does the opposite. It empties the cross of its power. You can actually remove the power that you need for them to be saved. So it actually does the opposite if you're sincere. The approval of man and the fear of man. Look at uh, the next page. Could it be 